Here we are, we're at the end of the line. Um, a lot of people said I was crazy whenever they said, and I said I was gonna be preaching through Leviticus, and 24 weeks later, here we are. We have reached the finish line. Um, we've walked through the book, and you know, a book that shows us what, how a sinful people can worship a holy God, both now and in the age to come. And here we come to the end of the book, um, and, we're, and I, I am going to say, and I say the end, we're going to do chapter 26 today. We're not going to hit 27. I made a, a call on that one, but uh, what, what this kind of comes together here at the end, it's kind of almost like it's a, it's a now that all things have been said, all, everything is laid out. God said, this is all here for you. You have now been given a choice. It's kind of like with my kids whenever, I, whenever they're ready to do something and I, I lay it all out for them and I say, here it all is and now you have a choice, right? You can choose obedience or you can choose disobedience. You can choose life or you can choose death, right? Anybody felt that way sometimes? But actually, in a sense, and I titled this Life or Death, because in a sense, when we come and follow, when we look at God's word and we look at how we are called to respond, it truly is a life or a death situation. One thing we're going to choose, we will either choose life in him or we will choose something else, and that will always lead to less in him, which will lead to death. And so we, we're, we're given this choice today, and the Israelites are given this choice in the, in the end of Leviticus, now that the matter's been heard, you have a choice. Will you obey or will you disobey? And so what we're going to look at, we're going to look through this chapter, 26. We're going to go through the whole thing. It's 44, 46 verses. We're going to try to run through these quickly. But we're going to see the consequences for both. And there's always consequences to our choices, right? Whether good or bad, there's always something that comes. We're going to look at the consequences of choosing a proper thing. And we're going to look at the consequences of choosing the improper and so we're going to walk through this. The first, I'll tell you on the front end, the first 13 verses are going to give us the obedience. What happens in obedience? And the following verses, 14 through 46, are going to give us the ideas of disobedience. Notice a little bit of an imbalance there, right? Because I think sometimes we need to hear the longer, right? So what we're going to do, we're going to read through this, and I'm going to stop along the way. I'm going to, and this is going to be one of those, some of you that want all the depth and you know, the, the full notes, we're not going to get all of these today. We're going to kind of hit some of these and run through them, but I think we'll be able to bring these together. And if you, need, uh, the, if you ever need the PowerPoint or anything, some of you, I know you're getting your phones out and trying to take, you know, I, I, we're, I'm going to start putting on Facebook a reminder. We'll have all of these on a, a Google Drive. You can get to them at any other time if you ever want. I know some of you, we get that, especially the note takers, right? Can't take them fast enough, and then the slide's already moved on, and now it's stressful. Yeah, see, there's about half the people are like, yes. Actually, and the good thing, I'm actually going to try to put them up on the front end. Uh, so some of you that love to have it on the front end, you can have it too. So side note, but they'll be there. Look on the, our Facebook page. If you're not on our Grace page, get on it, right? Grace family page. Uh, we would love to have you on there. You'll be able to get that. So... Ready for the word of the Lord? Finish out Leviticus well? All right, let's go. Let's, let's jump in. Chapter 26, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 to start off. Listen to this. It says, You must not make for yourselves idols, so you must not set up for yourselves a carved image or a pillar, and you must not place a sculpted stone in your land to bow down before it, for I am Yahweh your God. You must keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary, I Am Yahweh, and if you walk in my statutes and are sure to obey my commandments, I want to stop right there. I want to hit a couple of things here. 
And there's going to be three major things I want to show you in this section on what does it look like when the Israelites were called to obedience, what will God bring for them in the midst of this obedience? The first one is this, is that in these first three verses, we see that Yahweh reminds his people after all things have been said, after all of the, the sacrifices and the priesthood and the holiness code and all of the Sabbath festivals have been laid out, God's going to come to them. And notice he starts off, he says, before you think about ever going into the land and serving anyone else, remember, I am who? I am Yahweh. I am the God who rescued you out of Egypt, out of your slavery, away from death, away from being able to not choose your own way of life. He says, remember this when you see these things, whenever I call you to this. And notice, he actually kind of summarizes Leviticus there, doesn't he? In verse two, he says, you must keep my Sabbaths. That was the last things we've been looking at. He says, you must Reverence my sanctuary, that dealt with the first, chap, first 11 chapters of the Bible, right? All of the sacrifices, the priesthood. And he says in verse 3, if you walk in my statutes, ensure to obey my commandments. That's the holiness code. He's wrapping it all up here and saying, as you get into the land, remember everything that's been laid out for you. And remember that I, am, to remind, he says, remind your people of the covenant obligation to obey and reverence him. You have been brought into this covenant. You have been brought into Sinai, from Sinai, and it goes all the way back to who did I first make a covenant with? Who was your ancestor I first made a covenant with? Abraham, right? I called to him. I said, I'm going to give him a land, right? I'm going to give him descendants. And what was the third thing? Blessing. But not only am I going to bless you, Abraham, and your descendants, but through you, what's going to happen to the rest of the world? The world will be blessed through you. It's a vocational thing. God is bringing the people into covenant, into relationship with him, not only to give them blessing, but also a means to be a blessing to others. So as you come into this land and as your descendants grow, I want you to remember, if you want to live in that blessing, I promised your, your father Abraham, these are what you're to be about. Remember my Sabbaths, reverence my temple, and remember and walk in, live out my statutes. So let's look at some of the things that, that obedience will bring. These are going to be in verses 4 through 10. Uh, we'll, with first, we'll start from verse 4 and 5 first. He says, if you do this, he says, I will give you your rains in the time so that the land will give its yield and its trees of the field will produce its fruit. Threshing season will extend for you until the season for harvesting grapes. And the season for harvesting grapes will extend until the sowing season. So you will eat your bread until you are satisfied and you will live securely in your land. The first thing he says, obedience to my call, obedience to everything I've called you to leads to what? Material prosperity, right? I will take care of the land. Remember that whole trusting the Lord for all of the provision? I will take care of the land and I will give you everything that you need, all right? Second, how about verses six through eight? He says, I will grant you peace in the land so that you will lie down to sleep without anyone terrifying you. I will remove harmful animals from the land. No sword of war will pass through your land, and you will pursue your enemies, and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will pursue a hundred, and a hundred of you will pursue 10,000, and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. The second thing that, that God says is what? You will be, obedience brings peace and security. So we've had prosperity, but also peace and security. Let's keep reading, verses nine. It says, I will turn to you and make you fruitful, multiply you, 
and maintain my covenant with you. You will still be eating stored produce from the previous year and will have to clean out what's stored from the previous year to make room for the new. The third thing he says is what? Obedience brings productivity. Now, real quick, real, uh, let me note, notice something in verse 9. I will, go back to that, I will turn to you and make you fruitful, multiply you, and maintain my covenant with you. What does that sound like? Does that sound familiar? Where have you heard language like that before? In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, right? When God says to the people, what? Be, the very first command was be Fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, right? They're in relationship, they're in covenant. What is God saying, living in obedience to everything he's calling to, what will, in a sense, restore to the people if they do this? What will it restore? It brings them back to Eden, back to the way that God had called them to be before things fell apart, right? God says, I'm gonna bring you back to that if you follow after me. Watch this, let's keep reading though. It's kind of a neat, um, and then he says, uh, and I love that in verse 10, he's like, you're gonna have so much stuff, you're gonna have so much food that when the next harvest comes, you have nowhere else to put it, so you're gonna have to clean everything out. It's like, I've got too much food. I'm gonna take it to the food bank. I'm gonna give it to other people because there's so much. In other words, like Eden, you're gonna work, and what's the earth, earth gonna do? It's gonna produce just as it's supposed to, right? It's gonna help you in being what it's supposed to be. Okay, but, but what about this? Even more than that, what will obedience bring? Verse 11 through 13, he says, I will put my tabernacle in your midst and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and I will be your God and you will be my people. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from being their slaves and broke the bars of the, your yoke and caused you to walk upright. What did God bring to the people? He, he freed them from what? Slavery. Slavery being broken over. Remember we talked about last week that jubilee by being released, the weight coming off of somebody and being free to completely be able to live how they were. They would, you know, God had called them to live. He says, I'll give you that freedom, but I'll also, what? Ultimately, the biggest thing he says in verse 11 is what? I will bring my what? Presence. Obedience is going to bring them prosperity. It's going to bring them peace and security. It's going to bring them productivity. But ultimately, God says, if you follow, I will bring you my presence. Yahweh's presence among his people ensures earthly blessing for obedience. The point there is verse 11, presence. But notice in verse 12 again, what do you see there? I will walk among you and I will be your God and you will be my people. What does that sound like? Eden, right? Genesis chapters one and two. What did God do with Adam and Eve? He walked among them, right? In this, God is saying, this is how I've created life to be. And if you walk in this, even in the midst of the fall, what will be restored back to you? The presence, Eden, back to God's presence with his people and the earth producing as it's supposed to. The, the curses have been removed. These things are coming back. God's saying, this is what I've created you for. Even in the midst of the fall, I will restore these things that you have lost, right? And why did he do it? Why is he saying he's gonna do this? Because what? I am a God, I love you. I care for you. I have rescued you out of Egypt. I have made my covenant with you and I will not forget it right? Amen. So God is calling the people. He says, listen, 
everything, everything has been laid out, all we've been looking at for 23 weeks now, follow after these, and there's a restoration. I've already rescued you from slavery, I've brought you away from death, and now I'm bringing you into life, and I'm calling you to live it out, right? But he also doesn't stop there. He says, you have a choice, obedience, but what about the flip side? He keeps going on. Let's look at the flip side of it. What does he say about disobedience? And this is going to be basically 14 through 38, and 39, or sorry, through 39, and it'll change over a little bit on 40. Read with me in verses, uh, we'll start in 14 and 15 real quick. He says, if, however, you do not obey me and keep all these commandments, if you reject my statutes and abhor my regulations so that you do not keep all of my commandments and you break my covenant, So he's saying, here's the flip side of it, right? If you decide that I don't want those things, I'm not gonna live for them, what's gonna happen? Let's look at, there's five different things he talks about that are gonna happen. First is in verses 16 and 17. He says, I, for my part, will do this to you. I will inflict horror upon you. Consumption and fever, which diminish eyesight and drain away the vitality of life. You will sow your seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you and you will be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee when there is no one pursuing you. The first thing he says, if you decide not to, if you choose the other, disobedience, there will be terror, disease, and fever. Do you notice that? There's a lot that's gonna happen and not only are those, you're gonna run away in fear. There's gonna be fear that involves because you do not live in the way I've called you to. Second, verses 18 through 20, look at this. He says, if in spite of all of these things, what was been going on there, what he's just talking about, if in spite of that, I'm gonna give you more chance, you do not obey me, I will discipline you. Notice how many times? Seven times. Why seven? What was that, what was that number? What did it represent? Completion. If you're not gonna obey my completion, I'll make sure the disobedience upon you is completed, okay? I will discipline you seven times more on account of your sins. I will break your strong pride and make your sky like iron and your land like bronze. Your strength will be used up in vain. Your land will not give its yield and trees of the land will not produce the fruit. In other words, he says, what's gonna happen second is there's gonna be drought in your land and there's gonna be poor harvests. If you're not gonna obey, then I'm gonna take away that material possession. Remember the, the full grain and it's gonna flow over into the next one? That's not gonna happen. Anybody ever done the, the work where you've put in a whole lot of work, a day's work, and you get to the end and it just all falls apart? Or just it, it isn't that like the most frustrating thing? God says, I'm gonna make that happen on a regular basis. I'm gonna bring that feeling to completion. If this is the way you want to live, I'll bring that to completion. I'll make it worse, that, a worse feeling. How about this, verse 21 and 22. If you walk in hostility against me and are not willing to obey me, I'll increase your affliction seven times according to your sins. I will send wild animals against you and they will bereave you of your children. That's tough. Annihilate your cattle and diminish your population so that the roads will become deserted. In other words, what's he saying about wild animals? What are they going to do? They're going to kill your kids. They're going to take your your animals. And people are going to start disappearing. You think this is serious? Okay, the third thing, he says there's going to be wild beasts come. How about verses 23 uh, through 26? If in spite of these things, you do not allow yourselves to be disciplined, 
In other words, you haven't learned your lesson yet. Anybody? Anybody ever done that? Anybody, kids ever done that, right? They still don't learn their lesson? Nah, I heard it, yeah. They didn't, I heard it. I don't know who said it. I think it was Andy. I don't know who said it. But they, if you don't allow yourself to be disciplined and you walk in hostility against me, then I myself will also walk. Now, interestingly, what did he say earlier? If you obey me, I'll do what? I'll walk among you. But if you're disobedient and you don't learn from the discipline, he says what? Again, I will walk in hostility against you and strike you with completion seven times, right? Um, on account of your sins, I will bring on your, I will bring on you an avenging sword, a covenant vengeance. So who's this coming from? It's coming from him. Although you will gather together in your cities, I will send pestilence among you and you will be given into enemy's hands. And when I break off your supply of bread, 10 women will bake your bread in one oven and they will ration your bread by weight. You will eat and not be satisfied. I mean, it's, if you're not gonna learn, if you're not gonna learn, he says, it's gonna get worse for you. And the fourth thing he says is I'm gonna bring, how is that gonna happen if you're holed up in a city? When is that happening? When there's a siege, right? Whenever the enemy's coming and there's war against you, I will bring war, a sword against you, and you're gonna be in want. Not only that, verses 27 following, he says, if in spite of this, you do not obey me, and you'd think by now, right? You'd think we'd get the point, right? Well, let's, let's see if we get the point later. If in spite of this, you do not obey me, but walk in hostility against me, I will walk in hostile rage against you. Earlier, it was, I'll walk in hostility. Now it's hostile rage. God's getting, it's like, okay, this is getting further and further. And I myself will also discipline you seven times. Complete it on account of your sins. You will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. I don't think that's hyperbole. I don't think it's, it's I don't think that's, he's referencing some kind of metaphor. I think he's meaning what he's saying there. This is how bad things will get for you. I will destroy, destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars, and I will stack your dead bodies on top of the lifeless bodies of your idols. I will abhor you. I will lay your cities waste and make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will refuse to smell your soothing aromas. In other words, when you give up those sacrifices to me, I don't, I don't, I won't, I don't care about them. There comes a point. I myself will make the land desolate and your enemies who live in it, notice that, your enemies who live in it. What's happened now? Who owns the land now? You? God does. Right, God, sorry, yes, God does. I, I misspoke on it. God does, but now the enemy has come in and taken that over, right? I will scatter you among the nations and unsheathe the sword after you so that your land will become desolate and your cities will become a waste. Okay, I mean, this is, this is strong language, right? Okay, I mean, and I'm reading this and we go, whew, this doesn't sound like the loving God, the caring God, right? This is, this is tough stuff. You're gonna eat the flesh of your sons and daughters. Things will get so bad for you, you're gonna turn into cannibals. There will be nothing for you. That's how bad things are going. But notice, and he says, and I'm going to stack dead bodies up. But where are they stacked on top of? On idols. In other words, are the people that this is coming against, are they, are they innocent in this? Is this happening to a bunch of really good, loving, moral, I'm doing everything wonderfully and I'm following fully after you kind of people? 
No, this is a people that have done what with a God who has rescued them from Egypt, has brought them into the land, has given them all these good things, and says very clearly, if you obey me, you will have more than you could ever dream. It will be restored back to Eden. I've laid it out for you, and it's that easy as just following after me. Has he not made that clear? He has. But he's saying, but if you are following after other gods, if you decide I've brought you into this covenant, I've rescued you out, and if you still say, I want nothing to do with you, God, you will basically get everything that you want as a result. I think this is likened unto Romans chapter one, when God's saying over and over, it says the wrath of God was revealed against all of creation, right? What happened is, what was the wrath? It says they turned over, they, they turned over worship of God to worship of detestable things, of idols, of other things, and so he turns them over. In other words, if you want this thing, I will turn you over to it, and you will get exactly where that goes to. And it says, again, they, they went after the things that they wanted, the pleasures and everything, he said, and he turned them over to that. And they started going after, burning after desires for one another and going against the way God designs all things. And so he does what? He turns them over and he says, and they went into all kinds of types of sins. They even, and I love in Romans that he goes through this long list of sins and in the middle of it he says, they even go and find, invent new ways of sinning. It's like there's not enough ways already that if we're left to ourselves, if we're completely turned over to ourselves and going after what the world is, this is what it will lead to. This is not God saying necessarily, I'm just gonna rain these things down upon you. If you wanna follow after something that's not of me, the giver of life, this is what it's going to lead to. This is what the other nations are going to. Look around. Look around at our nation. Are we sacrificing up daily to the God of Molech, of child sacrifice? Do we not hear it daily right now, the fight to be able to sacrifice that every single day, whenever I want, up to the point that I want? God says, you will get everything that you want. Do not think that this is because God is saying, I'm just, I'm just, a, I'm just an angry dad, and so I'm just gonna punish you. No, he's like, I'm gonna give you every single thing you want because that's where life apart from me will lead. And this is harsh. I hate to say it. I, I hate even preaching these things because they aren't fun to preach. They're not good. They, I don't like it. But the reality still stares me in the face is this is exactly what happens if I want to follow after my own desires and not his Look at this in verse 34. He says, it goes on further. He says, then the land will make up for its Sabbaths. I love this. The land will make up for all of its Sabbaths. All the days it lies desolate while you were in the land of your enemies. Then the land will rest and make up its Sabbaths. All the days of desolation it will have the rest it did not have on your Sabbaths when you lived on it. God's basically saying what? Remember a couple chapters ago, that year of Sabbath, that seventh year of laying it fallow? He says, God says, if you don't follow after that, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna kick you off the land and allow it to finally what? Get it. If you aren't gonna give it, then I'm gonna make sure it gets it one way or the other, right? As for the ones who remain among you, I will bring, in despair, bring despair into their hearts and the lands of their enemies. The sound of blowing leaf will pursue them and they will flee as one who flees the sword and will fall down even though there is no pursuer. They will stumble over each other as those who flee before a sword, though there is no pursuer. And they will, there will be no one to take a stand before your, before your enemies. You will perish among the nations. The land of your enemies will consume you. And in verse 39, as for the ones who remain among you, they will rot away. What will sin do in you? It will rot you away. 
because of their iniquity in the lands of your enemies, and they will also rot away because of their ancestors' iniquities which are with them. In other words, nothing changes from generation to generation to generation, and you know what sin is going to lead to? It's just going to lead to you rotting away. It's not, this, is not, this is not fun, is it? Anybody liking this section? Anybody feel a little squirmy in your seat? Like, uh, these are the parts that I don't like reading in the Old Testament. This is the parts that's tough to, to get through. This doesn't sound like a God of love. But when I think about and understand what is it that God is calling these people to, think about everything that has been given to them. They were chosen out. They were brought into this family. They were given all opportunities, given all the blessings that are in Yahweh God and allowed to make a simple choice. Who is, allow, who is making the choices to make these things go deeper and deeper and deeper into sin and debauchery? Who's making the choices? The people are. Don't get it wrong God's not making the choice for the people here. The people are making the choice. He said, this is what's going to happen if. He's laid it out here from the beginning at Sinai. They haven't even gone in yet. They know what is coming. But I love this. If, if this is, uh, God doesn't let it end there. Look, let's look real quick at verse 40. However, I love those. However, right? That's not the end of the story. When they confessed their iniquity and their ancestors' iniquities, which they committed by trespassing against me, by which they also walked in hostility against me, and I myself will walk in hostility against them and bring them into the land of their enemies. And then their uncircumcised hearts become humbled and they make up for their iniquities. In other words, even if you're at this point, but you turn back to me, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. And I will remember, interesting, I will remember the land. The land will be abandoned by them in order that they may make up for its, there it is again, make up for its Sabbaths while it is made desolate without them. And they will make up for their iniquity because they have rejected my regulations and have bored my statutes. In spite of this, however, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them and abhor them to make a complete end of them and break my covenant with them. For I am Yahweh, their God. I will remember for them, the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out from the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am Yahweh. These are the statutes, regulations, and instructions which Yahweh established between himself and the Israelites at Mount Sinai through Moses. The last thing, I think, in, even in looking at all, those, all these things that are up here, go ahead and put that up, that all these things, right, you've got terror, disease and fever, drought, poor harvest, wild beasts, war, captivity. Ultimately, that's where it's going to lead to. He says, but if you make the choice at any time to what? Turn back to me. What will I do? I will forgive and I will bring you back. There is never a point that you can be too far away, too down in the depths, too much into that rotting away that I will not come to rescue you out because I am a faithful God. You may be an unfaithful people, but I am a faithful God and I will always rescue you. This reminds me a lot, and, and JJ read it earlier, this reminds me a lot of Deuteronomy 30 and I wanna read it again just real quickly that God kind of lays it out to them one more time because this was for the first generation who was at Sinai and what happened to that first generation? 
They didn't obey, right? And they died in the wilderness. And a second generation has risen up, and God repeats the second law, right? Deutero, second, namas, second giving of the law to remind them of what's gonna happen when they come in the land. Look here in verse 15 again. I'm gonna read this again. It sounds a lot like this. The choice and the consequences are laid out for them, and they're quite clear. And he says it again to this next generation. Look in verse 15 of chapter 30. He says, look, I have set before you today, what? Life and prosperity on the one hand, and death and disaster on the other. They're laid out here for you. Chapters 28 through 30 up to this point, are they basically what we just read in Leviticus, just with a whole lot more detail. If you want the extra details, they're in there, okay? What I'm commanding you today is to love Yahweh your God, to walk in his ways, to obey his commandments, his statutes, and his ordinances. What does that sound like? Leviticus chapter 25, 6. Then you will live and become numerous, and Yahweh your God will bless you in the land that you are about to possess. However, if you turn aside and do not obey, but are lured away to worship and serve other gods. There's a key. I will declare to you this very day. I'm, I'm telling you right now, right? You ever said that, kids? I'm telling you right now, this is what's about to happen. You make that choice, this is what's gonna happen to you, right? We've, we've done that one. You will not extend your time in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Today I invoke heaven and earth as witness against you. I have set life and death, blessing and curse before you. And I love this plea. Therefore, Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. I also call on you to love Yahweh your God, to obey him, be loyal to him, for he gives you life and enables you to live continually in the land Yahweh promised to give you to your answers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Has he made it abundantly clear what choosing life will give and what choosing death will give, what choosing obedience will give and what choosing disobedience will give. Has he made it clear? You'd think if it's that clear and you know what's coming, how do you think you probably would act? I'd love to think obedience. Let's see how they do. Second Chronicles, very last book of the history of the, uh, of the Israelites You've got First and Second Kings, which give a history, but Second Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, are just kind of give you an idea. Basically, these are written post-exilic, so that gives you an idea. A exile gives you an idea of what happened, but it's written after when they are coming back into the land, and it mostly focuses on the Southern Kingdom because that's about all that's left at this time, and it's a reflection back on what happened to remind them of how to go forward. And interestingly, at the very end of Second Chronicles. And if you go through, it's interesting. If you look at how, Second, how Chronicles lays out the different, um, it lays out the different uh, like genealogies and everything. They take all the way back to Saul, all the way to the end to um, Jehoiakim, I think is the last one, right? Uh, am I right on that? Come on, you guys don't know all the kings of Israel? I'm, I'm sorry. My mind's going blank. I think it is Jehoiakim, but... Um, all the way, it's interesting, he, there is a time from Saul, from Saul, the kings, all the way to the last king, if it's Jehoiakim or Jehoiachin, I can't remember, it's 490 years. Now, interestingly, 490 years from beginning to end of the monarchy, how many Sabbaths would that be? Sabbath years. 70. Okay? Let's look at the very end 
And as you, if you know the history, the Babylonians come in and they take all the people out in three different waves and God kicks them. Ultimately, they follow after idols, right? The Jews follow after idols. They, they follow after other gods. They don't worship in the temple. There's times it's, it's even sealed up. Nobody can go in. There's kings that literally find the law. It's like they go, they go in and find the Bible sitting in there. They're like, oh my gosh. I mean, like they, they don't, they're, they're so far away from following after God. Should there be any surprise of what happens at the end of Second Chronicles? No. But look at this. This is fascinating. Uh, what do I have up there? 19, okay. Verse 19, they burned down, so this is the Babylonians, they burned down God's temple, so that's gone now. They tore down the walls of Jerusalem. They burned its fortified buildings and destroyed all of its valuable items. Before this, they had taken out all of their fields, right? So there's no, there's no blessing there's war against them, there's famine against them, and now there's going to be captivity, right? He deported them all to Babylon who escaped the sword. They served him and his sons until the Persian kingdom rose to power. Oh, I love this. This took place to fulfill Yahweh's message spoken through Jeremiah. Now, let me ask, so in Jeremiah, this is in the famous passage, everybody knows this one, the, I know I have the plans for you, uh, the, uh, God, you know, I know the, uh, the plans I have for you, says God, Plans to bless and not curse. It's a wonderful uh, you know, verse for graduations and stuff. But right before those verses, God says something to the people. When they're about to go into exile, he says what? Get comfortable. Have kid, go ahead and buy a house or build a house while you're there. Have kids and have your grandkids while you're there and get comfortable. Why? You're going to be there a while. Interesting. How long is he going to be there? 70 years. He says, get comfortable, you're gonna be there. And then at the end of that, I know the plans I have for you after the 70 years of exile and get in me and not having the temple, I have plans for you to bless you, not curse you. Tech context, right? But look at this. It took pace as Jeremiah and lasted until the land, what? Rested. Look at this. God said, I'm gonna, I kicked you out until the land got its what? Sabbath years. How many of them? All the time of the desolation, the land rested in order to fill, fulfill the 70 years. Question, in that time of Saul to Jehoiada, you know, to the end of the kings, whichever one it is, I can't remember, but 490 years. How many Sabbaths were there? 70. God said, I'm gonna kick you out of the land because you did not let the land go. How many times? 70 times. In other words, how many times did the, did the, the, Jewish, the, the Israelites, the Jews, follow after what God called them to? Not a single time. And so God says, if you're gonna let it sit, I need, I, the land is so important to me that I'm gonna make sure it gets all 70 years in succession that you never gave it once. And he says... This is how it ends. This is how Chronicles ends, talking about God restoring the land. One year, every Sabbath you neglected. In other words, all of them. What does God lay before his people? Two choices, obedience, disobedience, life, death. And I have to say, there's not really a whole lot of difference in us today. We're not, are we under, are we under these, this old law, this old covenant of Sinai? No, we're not anymore, right? We're not tied to the land, right? America is not the land. 
America is not the place that we call upon and God will restore the land and restore these things. It's not America, people. It's not Britain, it's not Africa, it's not any other country. We're not under that covenant anymore. God is not calling people to live under that. But what he is, he has called us under a new covenant. He has called us under something. But he says, basically, I think we are given, and this is true, every blessing. Like the Israelites, if they obeyed, what did they receive? Blessing. Beyond anything that they could, they could even want or need. You and I have been given every blessing that's true that we are true heirs of the promise. Not because of our obedience, however. Not because of what we have done, but because of what? The obedience and faithfulness of Jesus Christ. If we place our faith in him, every bit of that blessing comes on us. Look at this real quick. Look at Acts chapter three. If you don't believe me, Acts chapter three, 25. It's up here as well. Acts chapter three, 25. He says, you... This is Peter. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham, and in your descendants all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He's saying all of the nations of the earth will be blessed, and you were part of that group. You were part of that blessing. You have been brought under. If you were in Christ, all of those things that were true for them are now true for you. What about this? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Right? It says when it's talking about what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, it says that he has, and I love this, past tense, this is very key, past tense, he has, blessed is God the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with what? Every spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms in Christ. Every bit of these, a bit of obedience and blessing comes because of who? Christ. Not only that, but I love this in Romans. Flip back to Romans chapter 8 real quick. Romans chapter 8, in the midst of, interesting, in the midst of a place where it's talking about a creation that's groaning, a creation that's wanting restoration, a creation that's wanting a burden lift off, lifted off of it, right? Hmm, I wonder how that burden got on it. Right? Us. Indeed, verse 32, if he who did not spare his only son but gave him up for us all. In other words, if God would go that far and give that much, give his son for us, how will he not also along with him, with him, what? Freely give us all things in Christ. You see that? You and I, we are not under that same covenant. There, but there are truths of obedience and there are truths of disobedience. There's truth of life and there's truth of death. If I want to choose life, then I do not choose my own obedience. I do not choose my own efforts to gain something. I choose what? To accept the obedience of Jesus Christ for me the faithful one of Israel to live and give us the obedience. He is the one that didn't fall. He is the one that ultimately brings what? A Sabbath. We'll get to that in a moment. So I think the choice of following Christ and being obedient to his word is set before us. Each needs to make their decision whether or not they will choose life or not. And if you're sitting here this morning and you have not chosen life in Christ, 
I'm calling upon you now that you do not wait and choose, keep choosing something that's other than him that will always lead to death. You will only find life in Jesus. And Jesus offers, an, he says in John 10, 10, I came that they may have what? Life and have it to the fullest, abundantly, to completion, full. But I think sadly too many choose not to take hold of it. I wanna finish with this. And Kyle, you're gonna like this. You've been waiting for about a month and a half for this one. And I know you're, I'm calling you out, but you've been waiting for this one, you told me. You remember back when we started the Sabbath, you know, we, we, we had that idea of the Sabbath, and we talked about, we said what? You know, um, that going back to Genesis chapter 1, there's how many days of creation? Six, right? And each day went evening and morning, the first day, evening, morning, second day, so on and so forth. But day seven, what did we not see? We didn't see an end to the day seven, right? And we asked the question, and I made you sit on the cliffhanger for about a month and a half, well, when did day seven end? Did day seven ever come to an end? And I want to answer this too. Do we as believers still observe this Sabbath that we've been talking about? Do we still, are we still called to observe the Sabbath? I'll say this up front. I say the day ended. Day seven did end, but it ended the morning of the resurrection. I'll get to that in a second. And I will say, no, you and I are not called to observe the Sabbath anymore. And you're going to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Fascinatingly, though, of the Ten Commandments, guess which one is never repeated in the New Testament? Keep the Sabbath, make it holy. Never repeated, interestingly. It's the one, only one. I believe this, and I think this, I think this is what Paul teaches. I think this is what the New Testament teaches. If you go back and you remember, the first festival we looked at was what? You remember? Start with a P. Passover. The day that Jesus chose to come to do his work, to die on the cross, right? To be the ultimate Passover lamb, to rescue us from the slavery of sin, which leads to death. I guess, sorry, slavery and death, right? And it's as a result of sin. He became the ultimate Passover lamb. And on the cross, he's up there and his final words are three. It is finished. Tetelestai. And in the Greek, interestingly, it means not, it's a past tense word that has present and future implications to it. In other words, it has been finished is the better way to say it. It has been finished. And also it is finished and it will forever be finished. The work of Christ was done on the Passover. And on, or on the Sabbath that followed the Passover, in between, what did Jesus do? He rested. His work was done. Day seven, he rested. Right? But on day eight, the first fruits, if you recall, what? He rose from the dead. And on day eight, a new day, 
I think day seven ended, the things of the old way, the old covenant, the way God would have done things, ended on that day when Jesus laid in the ground. And on the eighth day, what they called, even from the very earliest Christians called it, the Lord's day. Something was new. There was a brand new week that started, a new way of living. And Jesus, who said himself, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I have completed everything that the Sabbath meant. All of those festivals, all of those things have been completed in me, and there is a brand new week to live. And day eight started the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And we in Christ have found, those who come to Christ have found their ultimate Sabbath in him, which is a rest from what? Our works. A rest from our works to bring about blessings. A rest from works that bring about salvation. The Sabbath has been fulfilled. And the Lord's Day began that Sunday morning. And I believe this, the Sabbath is not a binding law for the church. Christians, we are not merely to give one day in seven to God as the the Jews did. We're not merely to give one day. We're to give all seven days to the Lord. If we understand what he has brought, he has brought a brand new day, a brand new week. Every day is day eight now, in a sense. It's something new. Since we have entered into his rest, every day should be sanctified. Not one day a week should be sanctified. Every day. Yes, I think it practically it makes sense to set aside a day for a focus on worship together with other people, for service, for reminder through the, you know, the covenant of what we do with the bread and the cup. Yes, I think that's, there's, there's practically some good sense in that. But that's not keeping Sabbath. We are not keeping Sabbath here this morning. Jesus kept the Sabbath. We don't keep it anymore. Every day is how we keep it. We don't do it in that one day. Making one day more holy than the rest is not living in the fulfillment of the promises, nor is it according to the teaching, I think, of sanctification, becoming more holy, more like Christ. But I think the principles of the Sabbath, all of the things that we've been looking at the last few weeks of provision, of living differently, of trusting, of giving things out over to God, to giving him the de- every single moment of our lives, of everything we say, say it does not belong to me, but it belongs to him, and I'm gonna use it for the benefit of other people, doesn't just happen on Sunday mornings. It happens every single moment if I understand what Jesus has come to do. And when you and I, when we begin to understand what it means to sanctify our lives, our time, our talents, our activities, our priorities, I think we find greater blessing and fulfillment in our lives when we stop living outside of just Sunday mornings being our day of worship. Here's my big idea. I think God's people are to choose life. You and I, we choose life, how? By living one's entire life in light of the Sabbath rest that Christ provided us. You and I are called to choose life and not death. We're to choose life every single day in obedience, for we know we have rest in Christ Jesus, amen? And I think as Leviticus, as we bring this to a close, you and I, we can worship a holy God 
as a, as a people that were sinful, we can worship a holy God. Why? Because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And we can worship him today, and we get to worship him all the way future into the end of the age and beyond because of what Jesus, our king, has done for us. Amen? That's the beauty of Leviticus. That's the beauty. It all points to Jesus. He is the one who fulfills it all, and he calls us into a new humanity, a new way of living, a new way of giving of ourselves, a new way of building a community among ourselves that's not based on what the world would say, but looks radically different because we know nothing belongs to us, but is all given to us on loan, and we make a point to look out for one another. I can tell you right now, there's a few people that are going through some things, as we, we even prayed about it earlier, that there are some people that are going to be going through some financial hardships, I can guarantee you, with medical bills and things like that. Is it our time to step up as a, as a community and help those people? To share the edges of our, our fields and to give the burden and to be the burden bearers to one another? Are we to live a way that's different? Are we to live outside of Sunday morning, how we live here and we worship and we say, oh, well, I would love that to be throughout the week. Anybody? Anybody love to see that more than just Sunday morning? But it doesn't start out there. Where does it start? Right here. You want to see it happen. You've been given. The choice is laid before us. Do we choose life? Do we choose community? Do we choose this beauty in Christ that we have? Or do we choose something else for our own benefit, for our own good, that will lead to nothing but destruction in our lives? It starts with us. We have the choice to choose life, to bring life to others because of the, what Jesus Christ has given us. Amen? This is what Leviticus is about, and I think this is the beauty of Leviticus. And we can worship together. We can grow in this it's going to be a step-by-step process, and we're going to fail along the way. It's going to happen. But we're here, and we're moving forward. We're taking step-by-step, step, growing in understanding who Jesus is. Amen?